Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here, and I am honored and, and excited to be here as we are kicking off our Gospel and Race series. Uh, to everyone who has prayed for us as we prepare for this, uh, thank you. I have felt your prayers throughout uh, this week. Um, here's the thing about race or, or racism. Uh, whenever you have a topic or sermon about something like this, nobody leaves feeling good. Uh, there's going to be a lot of awkward conversations in the hallway after, a lot of leftover donut holes, uh, because there's no such thing as small talk after you have uh, dedicated time exploring and excavating some of the more deep and dark things that this topic brings up. As the poetry, which was so beautifully read, illustrates, it's a messy topic for sure. And make no mistake about it, in this series, it will get a whole lot messier before there's any resolution. One of the drawbacks to conversations and approaches that people have when it comes to race and faith uh, and racism and faith is people want to rush really quickly to God and his power and his sovereignty and, and all these different topics. And uh, they spend a lot of time rushing past some moments that would be better off just kind of sitting in and exploring. So in this series, uh, we're going to explore a, a number of different things. And here's what I'm saying today. After today, know that there are seven weeks coming up after this. So don't email me and be like, yo, Jordan, J.O., you didn't talk about this, this, and this. It is impossible to talk about uh, all of the things associated with this, but we are going somewhere. Trust me, I promise. But before it gets resolved, it's going to get a whole lot messier first. Uh, but mess is not a bad thing. If there's to be freedom, if there's to be healing, we need to first get the mess out. I remember when I was about 19 years old, and before the logic portion of my brain had fully formed, I was feeling some dental pain. And I discovered and decided that it's probably not a cavity. I just think my teeth are too close to each other. So I went to the kitchen, got a butter knife, and started to move my tooth backwards. Genius idea, I know. Um, what happened in the next 24 hours was, surprisingly, the pain did not go away. It actually got much worse, and I grew an abscess in my jaw. Now, an abscess is basically like a gumball-sized infection that is one of the most painful things that I've ever felt in my life, the type of pain that you can't go to sleep at night. And the next morning, I, I got up, and we made an emergency visit to the dentist. And as soon as I got to the dentist, he took one look at my mouth and said, hey, I can't even numb that because it's so infected that I can't even put a needle anywhere without first, uh, without injecting the, the Novocaine into the actual infection. So you know what? We're going to have to do this with no Novocaine. He reached down, pulled out like a crocodile Dundee knife, <laughs> and started to just shank me in my jaw. Um, I grabbed the armrest, closed my eyes, and felt the pierce of the scalpel in my jaw. And let me tell you, that was the best feeling I have ever felt in my life. Sweet relief. My mouth in that entire dentist's office looked like a crime scene. It was blood and pus and fluid leaking out all over the place, but it felt so freeing to get that mess out of my mouth. That night, after the dentist cleaned me all up, I have never slept better a night in my life. There is freedom and beauty and healing and getting the mess out. But sometimes, as we talk about conversations of race and racism, for some people, it's going to feel like I am stabbing you in your jaw with no Novocaine. But it's intentional because we're going somewhere with it. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who is one of the leading authors and thinkers and uh, just an amazing, amazing dude, all who discusses uh, all about race and racism and faith, 
Uh, Brian Stevenson puts it like this, uh, our history has scarred us, it has bruised us, and it, it has injured us. But when we tell the truth about our history, we can change things. If we create spaces where we resurrect the truth, we can get to something that feels more like freedom, and we can achieve something that looks more like justice. We can shift the narrative that has burdened us and resurrect hope. Now, up front, I sit at a, a pretty uh, interesting position. Up front, there are some people, uh, as we go about today in the series, who will think that I'm going way too hard, and there are other people who will think I'm not going hard enough. Some people will be like, this dude Jordan, he's growing his beard out, he is unhinged, nobody can stop him. Uh, why is he digging and digging and digging and digging and digging and digging? And you're going to be thinking that I'm going way too hard. For others of you who are the self-appointed gatekeepers to blackness and all black thought, you're going to be thinking that I'm not going hard enough. And let me just tell you something out, out the gate. Don't clap. Uh, I was raised by two black parents who taught me from, as soon as I can remember, the beauty of blackness, of black love. I grew up in the black church, shallow Baptist church, where I was a junior usher, and I would march the choir in. Y'all don't know nothing about no usher march. <laughs> when I had hair, uh, I lived in the black barbershop. I went to a historically black college and a historically black law school because I really wanted to be shaped by black intellectuals. I married a black woman twice. <laughs> Both my late wife, Danielle, who passed away seven years ago, and now my present wife, Jessica, as the comedian Monique said, I love us. But here's the thing. Whenever topics around race and racism come up, the first thing that happens and should happen, quite honestly, is anger. But there is a huge difference between constructive anger and destructive anger. There is a huge difference between constructive anger and destructive anger. Uh, constructive anger tells us something is not right and something needs to change. It makes us aware and upset when something or someone is being wronged and that action needs to be taken to stand up for its or our survival. Destructive anger is different. Destructive anger is not about change. Destructive anger wants pain. It wants harm. Now, over time, if you are experiencing destructive anger, that gets stronger and stronger and makes it more and more likely that you will be expressing yourself in unhealthy ways. And one of the things off top that I want to caution people against is the destructive anger that not just aims to eat other people up, it will eat you up inside itself first. Jesus got really angry. Oh, there's one scripture in the Bible, one of my favorite stories. Jesus walks into the temple. He sees people selling bootleg Gucci belts, and he turns over <laughs> the tables. Now, Jesus was angry, for sure. Jesus was inhabiting God's, the, the gift of the beauty of emotion, of anger. But Jesus' anger was constructive. It was that he saw a problem that this was supposed to be a place where men and women connected to God, and they were, they were just exchanging money here. So yes, I want you to be angry, but I want your anger to be constructive. Am I angry? Absolutely. Uh, as the brilliant James Baldwin said it, um, uh, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively, not even fully, but to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Listen, you guys do not want a pastor who's using this stage to espouse destructive anger. It will not be limited to race and racism. 
It will show up in every single area of my life, and it will show up in every single area of your life. Destructive anger is not easily contained to one arena. It would show up in the way that I respond to emails. It would show up in the way that I treat my wife and my family. It would sh show up in the way that we, I pastor this church in every single facet. Destructive anger is not easily contained. Our mission here is bigger than just uh, causing pain to people. It's change. Our mission here is to connect people to Jesus Christ and to each other. Here's one of the interesting things about our mission. Uh, you, these two things go hand in hand. You cannot be connected to God and not be connected to God's people. As much as I would love to be able to connect with God perfectly and fully in my closet by myself without having to deal with messy people, it just don't work like that. Me and you can't really be cool unless you bang on my people. We can have an arm's length, distant relationship where we know each other, but we really can't rock together unless you bang with my people. God is the same way. When Jesus was asked uh, what was the greatest command in all of the Bible, this is the way Jesus says it. He was asked, teacher, which commandment, command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what Jesus says. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Everything about your faith, every single article, every prayer you pray, everything that you hope to have with God, everything depends on these two commands, to love God and to love people. Now, I can spend the next six months talking about the obstacles that we have to loving God with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, mainly my sin and my selfishness is reason enough that I don't love God nearly as much as I love myself. And loving my neighbor is equally different, difficult. You have cliques, and you have uh, different people who are annoying. You have people who chew with their mouths open. Uh, and we have a deeply entrenched historical contempt that has been brewed in this society through slavery and racism for the last 400 years, and to come to this church community and be tasked with the responsibility to love your neighbor as yourself, it is incredibly difficult. Jesus tells us this, uh, and this goes back all the way to the garden. It's rooted in something called the Imago Dei, why this is so important to Jesus. Uh, scripture tells us that you and I were made in God's image. In the opening pages of the Bible, Scripture tells us in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. So he created them in, his, in the image of God. He created the male and female. And here's what it says in Genesis 1 and 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then the morning, the sixth day. Now, this is a really important doctrine in the Bible. It's called the Imago Dei. And it basically means that you and I have been made in the image of God. And inside every single human being, there is an irreducible glory and value and worth that exists within us. And because of that, it is paramount that in order for us to love God well, we must also love people well. Following Genesis 1 and the creation that God had said, uh, this is something that has been good, and he looked at humankind and said, these are good. Um, immediately what happened after that was something called the fall of man. Now, the fall is a theological term which describes the transition of humans from obedience to God to sinful disobedience. 
You guys, if you've been to Sunday school, you've heard the story. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the serpent slithered his way up to them, and God had given them one clear instruction. Bro, you can eat whatever you want. Just don't touch this tree right here. Serpent slithers up and says, hey, did God really say you can't do that? And in such a way, the serpent slithers up to us today in so many ways and asks us, hey, did God really say that? Adam and Eve literally bit And they took the bait, and they ate, and what happened after that was what theologians call the fall, and that marks the end of the first act of the story, that there was, or the second act of the story, that there's creation, and then there's the fall. And what happened was men and women were kicked out of the garden, and there was a disruption in the vertical relationship that existed between God and humans. But in the vertical disruption, there was also a horizontal distortion. So immediately after Adam and Eve uh, fell uh, in, the, in the garden and were kicked out, you see all types of contempt and sin brewing throughout humanity. Cain kills his brother Abel and is not even mad about it. Am I my brother's keeper? In the vertical disruption of our relationship to God, what was also broken was a horizontal relationships, and it distorted our view of our neighbor. And since the beginning of time, humans have had a distorted view of the other. We've had a distorted view of everyone who is not us ever since the fall. Now, sometimes it's based on the color of your skin, the shape of your eyes, the accent that you have, where you're from. And other times, uh, it's, it's, it's based on stuff even much deeper than that. But you and I have a distorted view of our neighbor. Uh, a few years ago, I took uh, an amazing trip to Northern Ireland, to, to Belfast, And it's one of the best trips that I've ever had in my life. And in a lot of ways, it was profound and profoundly healing for me to understand just how distorted our view of our neighbor was. Uh, Our friends um, were related to a bunch of guys who had previously been in the Irish Republican Army, also known as the IRA. If you're a history person, you would know how much violence has been attributed to the IRA bus bombings and and murders, and so much hatred has been sown, but when I got to hang out with them, I got to hear the other side of the story. We were taken from monument to monument where our tour guide was showing us where his friends were murdered by the English Protestants. Now, Northern Ireland, Belfast, is technically a province or a, a property of England, and there has been so much hatred, so much division in over this piece of land from the Catholics and the Protestants, all people who share the exact same heritage. And it took us to monuments where kids were blown up in bomb attacks, and people were being gunned down by the police with no retribution, with no penalty for the police. And I said, hey, this reminds me a lot of home. These people, however, shared the exact same heritage. They looked exactly the same. They took us to another part of town where there was this huge 50-foot wall in town in Belfast, which still exists until this day, and it separates the Catholic side of town from the Protestant side of town. These people hate each other with a perfect hatred. And I started to realize that the chasm between us and what makes loving our neighbor so difficult uh, is sometimes, in this country for sure, related to the color of our skin, but it's much deeper and much more embedded than that. It is, you and I have this distortion of the view of our neighbor. All of us uh, from centuries past, we viewed the world in two categories, essentially. Us and them. Us is magical. Us is beautiful. Us is brilliant. Us is creative. Yeah, we have our little issues, but it's not that bad. It's not as bad as them. Them are ugly. 
Them are very prone to do some insane and horrific things. Them can't be trusted. Going back to the earliest of civilizations, uh, the Mandruku people, they had two words for everyone. It was Mandruku or it was Parawat. Mandruku was us, Parawat was them. If you were Parawat, they would kill you on sight because there was no trust. Ever since the fall of man, there has not only been a, a vertical disruption, but a horizontal distortion. Now, if we are going to recover as a community, it will be in recovering our Imago Dei. Now, race is a conversation that is uh, really rooted back to the 16th century when uh, race became a really popular concept, and it became something where people started to assign physical and moral and uh, emotional characteristics based on physical attributes. So if you had this color skin, they believed you to be this kind of person. Uh, but long before that, and race has always been a social construct where it has been very fluid. So case in point, in 1849, when the Irish first came to America, they were not considered to be white. Uh, but over the years, race as a social construct has changed in its definition and has let different people groups in at different points. But we have always had times where we have viewed people as us and them. And race over the time has transitioned from where we understand uh, different people groups differently over time. If you really want to nerd out over race, uh, you can look at like quotes from the third century where the Han Dynasty, uh, which is modern-day China, they were describing uh, white people in society, and this is what they said, that they are barbarians of blonde hair and green eyes, as resembling the monkeys from which they are descended. That same insult directed at white Europeans was later given to blacks 1,400 years later. Now, even though race, race is a social construct, it has very real uh, actual impacts. So one of the best ways to look at this is in the concept of money. Now, money is only given value based on the value that society gives it. If I were to give you a $100 bill and a $20 bill, the $100 bill is not more valuable intrinsically than the $20 bill. It both takes an immense process to print them, to, to check them, to have huge staff that oversee the minting process. The $100 bill is not $80 more valuable than a 20. Society just recognizes it with different value. Race and racism has always been like that. There is not a biological or intrinsic difference, but societies have given different weight and different value to different people, and this is what we understand as a social construct. Now, Social constructs are so important because they don't just stop at bad attitudes. They don't just stop at negative perceptions. They don't just stop at negative emotions. What happens is people who are in power now construct systems to dehumanize people that they have already determined were less than they are. This is why when it's so important when we talk about racism, we're not talking about prejudice or bad feelings. We are talking about systems that have been built, systems that have been erected to dehumanize people. In America, there is a great legacy of dehumanizing people, and we're not talking about just negative attitudes that people stumbled into, but systems economically, politically, emotionally, medically, scientifically, and religiously that were built to dehumanize people. If you think about it, they had to comprehensively and systematically dehumanize black people in order to enslave them. What we're here talking about today is systemic dehumanization for hundreds of years. Uh, I cannot emotionally tolerate to go through a long list 
of everything that has been done over these last centuries. I would not make it through the rest of today. I'll just list a few. Uh, economically, um, we see this in the Zong Massacre. Uh, the Zong Massacre is widely known as one of the, the most inhumane things that has uh, happened. It happened during the Middle Passage, where there was a shipment of slaves being brought from Africa to the United States, and they realized uh, partway through the journey, we don't have enough supplies to make it to America. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring up 132 slaves, chain them around their necks, and then drown them in the bottom of the ocean to try to get an insurance claim. People were packaged and distributed and, and, and shipped with less care than people have for iPhones. You don't do that unless you can first systematically dehumanize them to convince yourself that what is happening is no different than the way someone cares for pigs. Politically, it's no different. Do some research throughout the country. Um, the quotes from our presidents, uh, you think your boy's tweets are bad, look at Thomas Jefferson's quotes. Um, and things like the Three-Fifths Compromise, where black, it was literally the land of the law that black people, eh, they're not really human. They're, kind, eh, they're in between human and gorillas. So we'll give them the value of three-fifths of a person. That law stood in the books for over 100 years. Scientifically, some of the cruelest treatments of people uh, imaginable. Harriet Washington wrote a book called Medical Apartheid. Um, it is a brilliant work. work. Um, I only read like eight pages of it because I physically was going to have nightmares if I kept on reading it. Uh, one of the stories she tells is about a doctor whose statue is in Central Park today on 103rd Street and 5th Avenue, James Marion Sims, the father of modern gynecology, who made his advancements by operating on slave women without anesthesia. He would cut into them, rip their organs out, and discover things that could be distributed for medical science. His rationale was, these aren't people. In the same way that there are lab rats, people operating on black people. Religiously, it doesn't get any better. Uh, the theologians that are so quoted in seminaries and churches around this country were holding the Bible in one hand and slave papers in the other. Men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were racists that owned slaves, owned people, and yet, they are quoted for their theological gems and insight into the doctrine of God, the beauty of the Trinity, and all things redemption. There have been systems over the centuries of years that have been built up to systematically dehumanize people. We're not just talking about negative emotions. Uh, there's an interesting perspective when you stop and consider exactly how long this country treated black people and non-white people with contempt. Now, let's just say, let's just say the green is amazing. Let's just say the green is Wakanda, right? <laughs> Even if the green was amazing, which it absolutely is not, think about all of the seeds of hatred. Think about all of the seeds of dehumanization that were sown in slavery in the Middle Passage and Jim Crow. What we're talking about today as a, as a people is how do you recover, not from an unfortunate incident, but how do you recover from trauma, both personally and collectively as a body to love God and to love your neighbor. Dr. Shari Renee Hicks, she summed it up. She says, 180 years of the Middle Passage, 246 years of slavery, rape, and abuse, 100 years of illusory freedom, Black codes, convict leasing, Jim Crow, all codified by our national institutions, 
lynching, medical experimentation, redlining, disenfranchisement, grossly unequal treatment in almost every aspect of our society, brutality at the hands of those charged with protecting and serving, being undesirable strangers in the only land we knew during the 385 years since the first of our ancestors were brought here against their will, we have barely had the time to catch our collective breath. That we are here at all can be seen as a testament to our willpower, spiritual strength, and resilience. However, 385 years of physical, psychological, and spiritual torture have left their mark. And you and I are still recovering from that trauma. Every time there's a Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, it is another re-traumatization, and this traumatizes all of us. You're not able to see, you're not able to see Trayvon Martin's father, a picture, kiss his son, and not be traumatized by that. All of us. You're not able to, to witness and to watch Eric Garner using his last gasps of air to plead with the officers that he cannot breathe. You're not able to watch that and not see the dehumanization. Now, where we are now is best understood as inheritors of a legacy of trauma. Now, a legacy is something that endures, something that lasts, something that has been left behind. It breathes. It's deep-rooted in our past and passed down physically, socially, behaviorally, and spiritually in our mannerisms, beliefs, practices, and emotions through generations and centuries of human connectedness. A legacy is a remnant. It is residual. It has a lasting effect. Moreover, the profound difficulty of connecting with other people and loving your neighbor as yourself in this church, in this country, is doing so while dealing with the deep legacy of trauma that you and I have inherited. This has not left the American psyche. It is not, none of us are immune to it, though we would wish we were. So what is the present day legacy? Uh, what are the vestiges that have been left in the political, economic, uh, religious, and scientific institutions? Um, certainly politically in, in the penal system, African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across uh, the country more than five times the rate of whites. Uh, I volunteered at Sing Sing Prison for about two years, and every single time I would walk into the prison and I would just see the ridiculously unbalanced uh, representation of those who, the percentage of people that make up black, uh, of the percentage of black people make up the country versus the percentage of black people that made up the prison system. It made me sick to my stomach, and it is not because black people are committing more crimes. Uh, the University of Michigan did a study where they found that all other factors being equal, all other factors being equal, black offenders were 75% more likely to face a charge carrying a mandatory minimum sentence than a white offender who committed the same crime. And this is what they said. After controlling for a wide variety of sentencing factors, including age, citizenship, education, weapons possession, and prior criminal history, it's found that on average, black people received 19% greater prison sentences. Same crime, different time. Now, I witnessed this firsthand. Uh, before I became a pastor, I was a, a family court attorney where I cut my teeth doing juvenile delinquency uh, defense work. In two of my earliest cases were cases that stuck with me uh, and will stick with me for the rest of my life. Uh, one kid came into the courtroom, scrawny little dude. 
uh, read his file and realized that he had brought a BB gun to school. It was his first offense, and I had a conference with the judge and the prosecuting attorney. Turned to the prosecuting attorney and said, hey, this kid, he has no criminal history, first time getting arrested. Um, you know, he brought a BB gun to school. He was getting bullied. This is not worth our time. The prosecuting attorney shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, you're right, threw the case away. The judge said, bring the kid in, and she's going to yell at him for a little bit, scare him a little bit, and then we dismissed the case. A few months later, uh, I found myself in a very similar circumstance. Brought a kid in who, uh, first time ever getting arrested, never had been to court before for any reason, and he also brought a BB gun to school. 14-year-old kid said, Judge, this kid, you know, was scared of getting bullied at school, you know, made a stupid mistake. This time, the prosecuting attorney had a different posture, though. Oh, we can't be, no, we cannot be weak on crime. If we do this, if we let him go, we're going to embolden him. First, a BB gun, what's next? Judge agreed, Mr. Rice, this is a serious matter. We cannot just let this go. What, think about all the damage that he could have done, and they tried to give this boy a year in juvie. One was white, the other one was black. I'll let you decide and, and choose which one was which. They were trying to destroy this boy's life. The seeds have not left us. Now, I went into court, put my Johnny Cochran suit on, and got them both off, but that's a whole other story <laughs> altogether. Listen, when we talk about the legacy that slavery and racism has left in this country, it is living, it is breathing, it is alive in every single institution, including religiously. Next week, we're going to unpack a little bit of how uh, white supremacy has worked its way into the way we even view God and the way we view other people and how whiteness has been centered as the goal in all things pure and holy and everything else as foreign. It is in every single vestige, in every institution in American life, and it is a profound difficulty to navigate the daily, day-to-day -day instances of trauma and racism, and to even think about connecting with people in a meaningful way and loving your neighbor when there is a current context of, of, as inheritors of this legacy of dealing with this trauma that has been left for us. If you and I are going to recover, we need a better view um, not, of, not just of ourselves, but also of, of God. Now, there's two things that I, I really want us to focus in on in terms of how we can collectively come together as uh, a people, but how we can truly obey the great command that Jesus says to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and, and, and mind, and also to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, the first thing that, we, that I, I really want us to get a really good hold of is that in order for us to recover, we're not just talking about isolated instances, but recovering from a trauma that has been dealt down over the years. And in order to recover, you and I need to first develop a healthy perception of ourself. You, you and I need to develop a healthy perception of ourself. Um, if anyone leaves here today, and for whatever reason, because of what has been done to you or to your ancestors, or what has been done by you or by your ancestors, with not unpacking and going back to the Imago day, uh, it, would, it would break my heart. Scripture tells us in Acts 17, it says, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. 
And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's what the scripture means. That God in his sovereign wisdom decided from eternity past to put you in this body with that family, with your heritage and your ancestry. This is not a coincidence. This is not a freak accident, but that God has determined to put you in your body in this time, in this place, for a reason. And in order to develop a healthier perception of ourselves, we first need to realize that you and I are the Imago Dei. That when God looked at us, it was not a mistake, it was not an accident. No matter what has been done to you or your ancestors or by you or by your ancestors, you are God's good creation. The story does not end in the creation and the fall, but rather in the redemption of this world, that Jesus Christ has come to this earth and he is calling us as a people together to, to live and to sow the seeds, to be the city on the hill that shows this world what life should really be all about, to show people what the Imago Dei and its beauty and all of its splendor is all about. But in order to first do this, we first need a healthy identity uh, and a better perception of ourselves. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking uh, to one of my friends. We were on this panel, uh, a bunch of preachers talking about race and racism and faith. And as soon as we were talking about it, uh, all of us went down. And this one white dude, he was the only white guy on the panel. And as soon as it got to him, he was like, yeah, you know, I'm just a white boy, you know, and can't dance, and, you know, I got thin lips, and this, this, and this, and I felt bad for him. One, because he couldn't dance, and that's like a, it's a painful, <laughs> that's always painful to watch someone who can't dance. I don't care who they are. <laughs> Secondly, he didn't have a healthy perception of himself. He was letting what had been done by his ancestors shape the way he viewed himself. Listen, sin has distorted this horizontal thing, and if it wasn't with slave ships, it would have been with something else. Humanity has been distorted from the fall, and Jesus has come in our redemption. And Scripture tells us that you have been made in God's image, black, white, brown, whatever. Now, you could always tell the value of something, the value of something by what someone is willing to pay for it. The value of something by what something, someone is willing to pay for it. And here's what Scripture tells us in, in the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that for you and for you and for you and for you. And in order for us to have a healthy perception of ourselves, we need to root it in the Imago Dei. You were created in God's good image, with God's good intentions in mind. And when God looks at you, he says you are good, fearfully and wonderfully made. Everything about you, your hair, everything about you, your features, that is good. Now, one of the things that I would warn you, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in, in depth as the series continues is the danger of social media feeding you negative, healthy, negative perceptions of yourself. Here's how Facebook and Twitter and Google operate. They operate on algorithms. So it is not what is actually happening that they feed you. They feed you what they think will keep you on the page the longest. So two people can be looking at their devices in the same time, typing the same things, and get different results. And if you are not careful, you will be fed a stream of things that will attack your self-perception and will make you so angry and almost uh, and lose your, your sanity. Be very careful about what you allow to come into your space emotionally. Don't click on the links of somebody getting shot. Don't, don't even, don't, you don't need to see that. You don't need to see any of that stuff. You do not need to see what your boy tweeted at 3 in the morning. You don't see none of that. Some of us, we don't have the emotional space. We are recovering from a trauma 
Trauma, trauma doesn't mean that you just let any and all, everything in those doors. Be very careful about what you let into your space emotionally. Oftentimes, this means you don't have to follow everybody on Twitter. Some people are just espousing this destructive pain over and over and over again, and that's feeding you. You might not want it to, but it is. So be very careful about what you do. Uh, secondly, this week in community groups, uh, we're going to be doing some exercises where we are really truly looking at uh, how you and I understand ourselves and what our own ethnic identity is to work through and to understand how you view yourself. What shapes the way that you view yourself? What are the experiences that you've had that tell you how you should think about yourself? Now, we need to dig through those and find freedom. Now, secondly, not only do we, uh, we should uh, develop a healthy perception of self, and we need to do that, but secondly, our church community, in order to recover from the trauma of racism and slavery, we need to function in a way that is appropriately challenging and appropriately affirming. We need to function in a way that is appropriately challenging and affirming. Now, it would be a colossal failure to challenge someone that needs affirming and affirm someone that needs challenging. It would be a colossal failure for you to challenge someone who needs affirmation and affirm someone who needs challenging. And in order for us to recover as a people, because you do need other people in your walk with God, is that we must be both appropriately challenging and affirming. Now, this is really big for our white brothers and sisters here. Uh, you and I are all image bearers of the divine, but we do not all experience race and racism in the same way. And if there's a black or brown or Asian brother or sister that is kind enough to share with you their lives, it is probably not your place to be challenging. Imagine a woman comes to me and says, yes, I think I, I was, Jordan, I was sexually assaulted. And I come to her and say, I mean, I don't know if you were really assaulted. What were you wearing? Maybe you wanted it. How do you know what his hand on your thigh meant that? Maybe he was just saying hello. It is not my job at all to challenge a sister who was talking about the daily lived experiences of sexism in a daily way. There's no way on the planet that I could ever for two seconds understand what it feels like to be a woman in this extremely sexist society. It is not my job to challenge her. Likewise, the worst thing you can do is challenge someone in their lived experiences of racism. That is the quickest way to destroy community. If you see this happening in your community group, on wherever, stop it, shut it down immediately. Everybody has a green light to just end that part of the conversation. It is best for you to sit and to listen. Now, the best way for us to move forward is to know how to be appropriately challenging and appropriately affirming. Uh, and here's what I know to be true. The natural response that people have is guilt. And people try to work off their guilt by trying to hurry up and do something in the the motivation for that is a good one, right? You don't want to sit in a space where you feel terrible or that people are being harmed on a daily basis. You don't want the Trayvon Martin to keep on happening. You don't want our penal system to be, uh, uh, to be unjust, continuing to, to harm people. But we don't need anything from you but just to listen. We don't need you to solve problems. Black people have been uncomfortable in this country for 400 years. If you're starting to feel uncomfortable, welcome to the party. Now, this principle is such a huge thing that we have to think about even community uh, and recovering from a trauma of racism and slavery much in the same way that someone is recovering from grief. Now, there's a principle in grief. This will serve you in every single way. Whenever there's someone experiencing sickness or pain in any way, here's the formula. 
comfort in, dumping out. The person who was most impacted by the situation, you pour in comfort to them, and we dump out complaints, questions, challenges. If there is a sister who's been experiencing a sexual assault, it's not my job to dump into her and tell her how bad I feel about it. If I feel bad about it, imagine how bad she feels living it. Now, here's the thing about that. If you get that formula wrong, what happens is you break down community and you cease to be a person that people want to be around. Um, when my late wife was sick with cancer, there were some people who got this formula and some people who didn't. Comfort in, dumping out. Uh, my sister-in-law was one of those people who got it, uh, and she's, to this day, one of my favorite people. And um, over and over again, when I would be in the hospital with my late wife or we'd be at home and uh, she was starting to become over overcome with emotion, she would just step out and say, oh, I need, you know what, I think I left my phone. I'm like, your phone is right there. You know what, my other phone, I left my other phone. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I mean, I didn't know you had two, but... Or she would step out and just, um, just say she had to go to the bathroom, and I'm like, yeah, it's been 30 minutes and she's still not back? She need more fiber in her diet or something, because it ain't... <laughs> she needs to get some, some more greens, some leafy greens or something. What she was doing was sparing me, her brother, the one that she loved, the additional burden of having to also carry her pain and sadness. I had enough to carry on my own. She was going to take that out and dump it on my brother, on my parents, on other people, but she didn't want to re-traumatize me by making me have to bear alongside my own personal pain, her pain as well. When I mean by comforting in, I, I certainly mean not traumatizing people with, uh, by questioning them and trying to upend and... and uh, investigating and interrogating them on their lived experiences, but I also mean in not burdening people with the additional burden of your pain and your discomfort, comfort in, dumping out. Now, but we should also be appropriately challenging. Uh, the story doesn't end at uh, just being appropriately uh, affirming, but we also need to be a community as a, that is appropriately uh, challenging and making sure that we are not losing sight of the gospel and how it shapes and frames this conversation uh, there's a philosopher that has said it better than I ever could. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he says, we struggle to have the right view of our neighbor because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. I exclude my enemy from the community of humans. Those people that God and Jesus has come for to redeem, that God says he created them in his image and they are good. And I exclude myself as a person who needs grace, us and them. Us is magical. Us makes errors. We make little mistakes, but we don't really sin. But them, man, they're so far gone. They can never get it on their own. They're prone to it. Now, there's a scripture in the Bible which uh, comforts me and also challenges me over and over again. It's a story about a man named Levi and Jesus calling Levi to be one of his first followers. Levi was a tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors, they were singularly the most hated people on the planet. They were traitors. They were stealing resources from their people, the Jews, and then they were giving it to the Roman Empire so that the Roman Empire can continue to oppress uh, their own people. These were the last people that anybody would have ever wanted to associate with God or godliness. In a dramatic scene, Jesus walks up to Levi while he's at the tax booth collecting taxes and says, Levi, follow me. The Pharisees were indignant. Whoa, Jesus, what kind of religious leader 
hangs out with tax collectors. And Jesus responds to them, to them and says this, these words that I hope hit your heart and your soul, I have not come for the healthy or for the sick. The only sin that condemns us is self-righteousness, thinking that we don't need God's grace, but other people can't get it. If you're not careful, you will be excluding the people, some people, out of the community of humans and excluding yourself out of the community of sinners, all of us in need of God's redeeming, saving, restoring, and loving grace on our lives. Now, as we continue uh, in the rest of this series, it is this grace and this perspective of God's good creation in all of us that will lead us through, that will help us to navigate this legacy of, of trauma and racism in this country, and that will bring us to a point where it resembles more something that looks like healing, something that looks more like freedom, something that looks more and more like us loving our neighbor just like we love ourselves. We're going to celebrate that grace and our need for God and his grace right now. Let me pray for us first. Heavenly Father, uh, you know the deep and dark uh, history of this country and of the endeavor that we attempt. Um, you know the hearts here, Lord, that struggle to love you and certainly struggle to love our neighbor. And God, as we get an upfront view of how distorted uh, our view of neighbor has been over the years, Lord, I pray that we don't move into a place of, of um, thinking that you can't bring something beautiful out of it. And as we wade through this mess, Lord Jesus, would you be with us? Jesus, let me pray. Amen.